0: In a few moments, you'll experience the live stream from Life Point Church. I'm so glad that you're here to join us for that experience. At our church, our mission is to influence people to find and follow Jesus. We want to see people find Jesus, in other words, believe in Him for their salvation. And then after that, we want to see those believers follow Christ in a life of wholehearted devotion. All of our energy and effort is put into serving you, helping you experience that. So maybe you're joining us from another part of the world or another state in the United States. We're glad that you're here. My encouragement to you would be wherever you are in the world, find a local body of believers to get involved with. Don't let this be your church alone. And then for those of you that are in our local area or maybe even part of our church family, Perhaps some of you are on vacation or some of you have kids that are sick or for whatever reason you decided to stay in this weekend. And I would just invite you to consider not using our live stream as a substitute for the church experience. Make sure you're involved in community. We have the wonder of technology to take advantage of experiencing a service through computer and in our own homes, but that's not the church. I would invite you to come and be part of community. You can do that especially through small groups here at our church. I would invite you to get connected with people, share life together, be part of what God is doing in each other's lives. It's a very powerful thing. And then, of course, as you're watching via live stream, I would invite you to participate in the act of worship through giving. I would uh, would encourage you to go onto our website, lifepointchurch.us. There you can find a tab to click, and you can be a part of this experience through the giving of your gifts My deepest prayer is that God would use the experience of this service to change you, to draw you closer to himself. I hope you enjoy this time together. Well, good morning, everybody. Really great to see you. I watched some of you come in very confused looking, like, where is my seat? Where is my seat? This is a little unusual, uh, especially for those of you that are guests with us. This is not the normal setup, but it is a very special weekend around here uh, as we baptize folks that are saying, yes, I want to publicly identify with Jesus. We started that Friday night with kids' baptism. Incredible time in this room. I wish we could have all been here. Wow, amazing to see these kids, their family, supportive friends, everybody here to just say, you know, we cheer you on as you place uh, your faith in Jesus. And then, of course, publicly identify with him uh, through baptism. So um, we get the opportunity today to set the stage and have some of you uh, be baptized That want to. We have some planned baptisms, and then as you heard earlier, we'll offer the opportunity for you to be, uh, we call it spontaneously baptized, okay? So in the moment if you decide uh, to do that. And the truth is around here we're offering baptisms more frequently. This is a very special opportunity. The only time we do spontaneous baptisms. But throughout the year, if you've been in services, you know that we've done baptisms throughout. So uh, incredible time to do that. Hey, the most important Change in life occurs when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So many of us have the idea that, hey, you know, getting to know God or getting connected with God is all about behaving myself and trying to be good. And then maybe I'll be good enough to make it to heaven. Of course, none of that's found in the Bible. We enter into a relationship with God by understanding he offers us a free gift Nothing that we do to pay for it or to earn it or to deserve it. And so simply by believing Jesus has taken your sin on himself, died in your place, and now offers you a gift without cost, in that moment of belief, we have life. And so that is a beautiful, beautiful arrangement. It's actually counterintuitive to the way most of us think or would do it, but this is the way God has designed it. Then following a commitment to Christ, Jesus invites us to follow him. He invites us to follow him in a life of devotion uh, and discipleship. And I would suggest that one of the best words that we can use to describe that life of adventure after believing in Jesus is the word investment. God is looking to you and to me to invest our lives. Now, I don't know if you've thought about it long and hard, but we have one life. That's it. One. One life to live. And... After we place our faith in Jesus, Jesus says, come on and follow me. Come on and invest your life. Invest the one life that you have and let me do incredible things. So it makes sense if we have only one life that we ought to pay careful attention to that life. So today I want to talk to you a little bit about investing for life. So your soul is a terrible thing to lose. I think we would all agree. When you think about that, the Bible says it this way, What will it profit a man or a woman if he or she gains the whole world and loses his or her soul? That's a daunting prospect, isn't it? So in other words, we can surround ourselves with all kinds of distractions and activities. But in the end, if we're separated from God, what a terrible thing. But do you realize that you can have your soul found and still lose your life? In other words, fail to invest your life. The idea I just explained is found in Mark's gospel. Let me highlight a verse for you in a translation that I think accurately hits the nail on the head here. This is Mark chapter 8 and verse 36. Listen to this verse explained this way. For what benefit is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit his life? Now what's interesting is the word for soul in the Greek language is the same word for life here in this passage. And so rather than thinking, oh, my goodness, it's all about saving my soul. This verse is really talking about something else It's talking about living your life fully, investing your life fully, not forfeiting your life. What profit is it? What benefit is it for any of us, you know, to to like push aside the things of this world or to gain the whole world and yet forfeit uh, his life? See, the truth is it's possible to be alive and not actually be living. And get this, it's possible to waste your life. One life, it's possible to waste it. And that's true, by the way, even for one who has placed their faith in Jesus. It's possible to waste your life. That's why Jesus invites us to invest our lives and to discover what life is really all about. So toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, Jesus strings together a series of parables Now, a parable is a story that Jesus makes up to illustrate a deeper spiritual principle. Because all of us are hardwired to love stories. That's why we go to the movies and read books and all that kind of stuff. We're we're hardwired to be story people. And so toward the end of Matthew, Jesus strings together stories, these parables, that are all about faithful servants and unfaithful servants. They're all about people that are devoted to the master and people that are not devoted to their master. People that invest their lives well and others who don't invest their lives well. And among these parables is one that we call the parable of the talents. Now, the, the labels are not in the Bible for these parables. It's just something, you know, people read and they go, hey, let's call that the parable of the talents. OK, and it stuck. And so this is what we call this parable. This is found in Matthew chapter 25. And the story begins like this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who has called his own servants and delivered to them his goods. Now what Jesus is driving at here is Jesus is the man in the story. Jesus has gone away to a far country. Remember Jesus has ascended. Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. And he has distributed to his servants, those of us that have believed in him, his goods. He said to us, hey, hey, I want you to invest on my behalf. I want you to live your life as an investment for me. So that's how the story gets set up. We call it the parable of the talents, and conveniently, uh, the word talent kind of has a double meaning for us. In this passage, it means a measure of money. That's what a talent is. It's a measure of money. But uh, incidentally, it's also something that we would describe uh, as gifting in our own lives, right? So it sort of has that convenient sort of double meaning for us in English. So we've set the stage for the story. Here's how it continues. And to one, the master gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately, he went on a journey. Now, I'm holding a bunch of money in my hands here. See, and some of you just looked up really fast, right? (laughs) Right? So I say, Jesus, and you look at the floor. I say, money, and you look up, okay? So here's here's how the story goes. So the master distributes one, two, three, four, five. There you go. Hold on to that. By the way, I need it back. This is just an illustration, Jenny. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Then he distributes two talents to another. And then he distributes one talent to another. And the master's gone. So he distributes these uh, talents to his servant. Now, here's the beautiful thing about what he's doing here. One of the ways that we pull away and understand what's happening here. First big overarching idea is that servants of God are given differing responsibilities based on ability. Like, do you realize this? Like, it's God who distributes this. Did you notice what the verse said? The master distributed talents to each according to his own ability. Now, I want to encourage you to view that as quite encouraging and refreshing, Because you're only held responsible for what God's given you. That's it. So God never says to the one he's given one talent to, how come you're not more like the five talent person? He never does that. Because he is given to us based on our ability. And there's amazing freedom found in that. The master is distributing in that way. So I would suggest one of the most exciting adventures in life is to discover the person God has made you to be. After all, that's what he's holding you responsible for. To discover what God has given you, what gifts He's placed in your life, what talents you might have, how he's looking to you to invest your life. Friends, that's liberating. That's incredible to discover that. And I would suggest not only is it liberating to discover the person God has made you to be, but it's equally liberating to discover who you're not. Because so many of us are prone to compare, or prone to why, hey, how come he got this and she got this and I didn't get this? And we get stuck in this cycle or this loop. We, I would encourage us to, to, to understand that if you're not being you, there's nobody to be you. God has uniquely given you what he's given you and he is inviting you to invest the person that you are. So stop looking at others to gauge your value and contribution. I know we all do it, I'm preaching to myself here, but it does no good. You know, the disciples were famous for this. They were always looking at each other, trying to figure out who had the leg up. And so one day, Jesus has had a discussion with Peter. It's actually a pretty serious discussion, because He's told Peter how Peter will die. It's a good chance, Peter, your arms are going to be stretched out, you're going to be crucified. And tradition says that's exactly what happened to Peter. And so after this discussion, Peter turns to Jesus and he sees John, another one of Jesus' disciples. And Peter points to John and says, what about him? And Jesus says, what is that to you? What is that to you? In other words, worry about following me. And so let's forget all this comparison stuff. Let's understand who God has made us to be and be about investing it. So what did the servants do with the money that they had been given by their master? Well, we're told, picking up at verse 16. And then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So very simply, this is what happened. Gives five Another return of five, total of 10, gives two, another return of two, a total of four, gives one, no return. Hides it, plays the safe route. So let's think a bit like this. One of the things we learn from this parable is that God expects you to invest the life you've been given. That's what he's looking for. And a couple of the servants got it intuitively. They knew what they were about. So the first two servants, they understood this and they invested. The last servant didn't invest what he had been given by the master. And so, again, the master's gone, remember? And the master returns. Verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He came back. He said he was going to come back. I'm going away, he says. Now, of course, this is a picture of the return of Christ. This is a picture of Jesus who is now off the earth, having entrusted those of us who have believed in him with, the, with certain gifts and talents and the ability to influence. He now returns. And so this is also a picture not only of the return of Christ, but the accountability that every Christian has before Jesus, known as the judgment seat of Christ in the scriptures. Now, there are lots of different kinds of judgments. This is not what's called the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is where we, uh, people will stand before God who have not believed in Jesus. This doesn't determine The judgment seat of Christ doesn't determine whether you go to heaven or go to hell. That's determined the moment you believe in Jesus, the moment you receive that free gift, not based on how good or bad you are, the moment you receive that free gift. And so the master returns and he comes to settle accounts. And so we're told that the person that had received five said, hey, look, master, here's what I did. I, I have five more. I invested the five that you gave me. The one who received two, same thing. I invested the, the two that you gave me. And notice the response. The one who has five says, I invested five. And here's what the master says, verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, that's an incredible thing to hear from the master. I would suggest that he has reward in mind here. This is not talking about going to heaven. He's rewarding this faithful servant. Several weeks ago, I talked about heaven. Remember, I said no one will spend eternity in heaven. God will create a new earth, the Bible tells us, and we will occupy that new earth. And that new earth is divided into cities and divided into ruling and all that. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here in this passage. You're going to rule over cities. Well, then again, the person with two talents comes and says, hey, look at me. I, I have these two talents you gave me and I invested that. I have two more. And notice what the master says. The exact same thing he said to the one who was given five. Notice the references up on the screen there where you're looking. Verse 21 and verse 23, exact same words. And the Lord said to the one who had received two and invested two, well done, good and faithful servant, he says, You were faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, I find that refreshing. Because he's not saying, how come you weren't more like like the one who was given five? They they hear the very same thing you took based on your ability and you invested and you get the same praise. You get the same reward from the master. Well, then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you would be a hard man. And, you know, you know, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you have not scattered. And I was afraid and I went and hid the talent in the ground. Look here. Here it is again. I didn't lose it. Here it is. I didn't I didn't, you know, get any gain on it. But here it is. I find it really telling that his motivation was fear. Because you and I are tempted just When we're confronted with the stuff of life, we're tempted sometimes to be afraid. And so he played it safe. He didn't do anything with the one talent he was given. Now notice the words of his master, verse 26. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. Now those are startling words to hear from the lips of Jesus. Would you agree? Let me ask you, can a Christian... Be wicked or lazy? (laughs) Yeah, the answer, of course, is yes. Yes. In fact, when we think about how we might live our lives, this is also a description in the scriptures of a carnal Christian, we're told. Other places in the scriptures. And Paul said, you guys are behaving just like mere men. There's no difference in the way that you're living and someone who's separated from God. And he's addressing Christians. And here, too, God is addressing Christians. And so he begins to sort of rebuke this servant. And then notice verse 30. And he says, cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now remember up to this point. This is part of a series of parables where Jesus is contrasting faithful servants and unfaithful servants. And so when we see this language, we immediately bail out of the context of the narrative and we go, oh, my gosh, now all of a sudden this servant is not a real servant. This servant is not a believer. But there's nothing in the parable to suggest that. We're told that there are faithful servants and there are unfaithful servants. But we get disturbed by the language in here don't we? Zane Hodges taught Greek at Dallas Seminary for 27 years, and he was my friend and theological mentor. He, he helped shape the way that I view God's work in our lives and the scriptures. And, and Zane, along with other scholars like Jody Dillow, Earl Rodmacher, who's past president of Western Seminary, Bob Wilkin, Dave Anderson, and so many more, Help me understand in fresh ways that Jesus is actually describing a believer here. And it, it would be only if we bring our prejudices to a passage like this that we would conclude otherwise. Listen to what Zane Hodges says about this passage. Most Christian readers identify the outer darkness as a description of hell. Maybe some of you, as soon as that verse went on the screen and we read it, maybe you thought, okay, well, that's, those guys go to hell. But there's nothing in the passage to suggest that. Hodges goes on, there's no suggestion here of punishment or torment. The presence of remorse in the form of weeping and gnashing of teeth does not in any way require this inference. Now this is startling. In fact, I would suggest that the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth is actually a Middle Eastern idiom that implies regret or remorse. And it's literally this, Oh, it's that. Oh, no, and it's the supreme regret experienced by the believer in Jesus who stands before Jesus but who has not invested their lives, they appear empty handed before Him. So, notice the outer darkness. It's literally translated the darkness outside. And the idea is also found in Matthew chapter 22, a a parable about the wedding feast. And in that parable, we understand that believers who did not invest their lives are on the outskirts of the lighted festivities. In other words, there's a banquet being thrown. But I want you to think about it like this. Think about this is the lighted part of the banquet. But all along the edges are the darkness outside. The outer skirts of the lighted wedding festivities. Do you know the Bible tells us that those who have not invested for Jesus, those believers who have not invested their lives, will be on the outskirts of that single celebration. All of us, we think about, okay, well, wait, won't I be clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Yep, that's what gets you into heaven. And everyone, even on the outskirts of that banquet, is in heaven. But do you know what we need to be attired with to attend that wedding festivity? We need to be attired with righteous linen garments. And do you know what Revelation tells us those linen garments are? The righteous acts of the saints. The obedience, the investment of our lives. That's what will get us into this intimate moment with Jesus Christ. In other words, God will reward faithfulness and withhold reward for unfaithfulness. 1 Corinthians 3 describes this exact thing, but in different terms. Let me start with the end of the story. A man is saved. He has believed in Jesus. He's in heaven forever. He's with him. He is saved. But guess what? He didn't get saved by doing good works because nobody does. He's in heaven But he also built on the foundation of Jesus with faulty building materials. He used wood, hay and straw. And all of those faulty materials got burned up at the accountability before Jesus. And we're told this man is saved. But he's appeared before Jesus empty handed. See, the truth is, every one of us who have believed in Jesus, and there are many in here, there's some of us that perhaps have not, but all of us who have believed in Jesus will be held accountable for the lives that we have lived. Here's one way to think about it you don't really understand grace until you have room in your thinking for a Christian who fails and fails miserably, empty handed before Him. So, let me ask those of you who are still trying to put all this together, maybe you've never placed your faith in Christ. Do you understand that it's not by works that you get to heaven? In fact, God offers you the free gift of salvation through his son by believing that Jesus went to the cross, died in your place. And in that sense, becoming a Christian is relatively easy. Jesus even used that word. But having believed in him... He holds us accountable for the way that we live and we will answer before him. So here's the question. Are you investing your life? Well, that poses a lot of other questions. First of all, you got to know who you are. You got to know what you've been given because that's what you'll be held responsible for. That's what you'll be held accountable for. And thus begins the exciting adventure of self-discovery along with God's help in your life. So one of the things that happens in life is that, We can place our faith in Jesus. We can discover how good he really is. And then we begin to follow him, hopefully. And one of the ways that we indicate to Jesus, hey, we want to invest our lives for you, is by being baptized. Because baptism is a public proclamation of the beautiful picture of going under the water, being buried with Christ, and then being raised to life. I have a new life is what we're saying when we're baptized. And so, again, this is that weekend where we uh, can do that. Baptism is not superstition. It's not magic. It doesn't get you to heaven. It doesn't save you. It's not a ticket to, you know, freedom, so to speak. It's just a way for us to express to others that are watching, I want to align myself with Jesus. So in a moment, you're going to see a summary video from our kids' baptism Friday night. Incredible time. Beautiful celebration. And then you're going to hear the audio testimonies, the stories of some that are coming to get baptized uh, today. And that's a beautiful celebration as well. But you heard it earlier. I want to invite those of you that perhaps didn't make it on the list. You didn't plan to be baptized today. And you say, you know what? I, I want to be baptized today. And we're going to give you that opportunity to do that. And let me invite you to consider three questions if that's you First, have you believed in Jesus uh, for the gift of salvation? And if you're confused about that, if you're saying, well, you know, I kind of think I have, I kind of think I'm a Christian, I'm an American, right? Well, you probably don't understand it. And we'd like to work with you and help you with that. Here's another question. Do you understand the purpose of baptism? Again, it doesn't save you. It's not some special grace. It's just an act of obedience. And then finally, is there any reason preventing you from being baptized today? As you heard earlier, we have clothes for you to change into to get wet and towels and all of that. So hopefully that's removed the excuses that you might have. This is a really special time. I love that we get to do this uh, together. And uh, as these folks are baptized, I'm going to encourage you to make it a celebration. You know, cheer them on. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So uh, let me pray for us and we'll move into that uh, time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing gift found in your son Jesus. And we thank you for the invitation for us to invest our lives, one day we'll stand before you and give an account. More than anything, we would love to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.